Um, today's scripture is Esther chapter 1, verses 1 through 5. Now in the days of Ahasuerus, the Ahasuerus who reigned from India to Ethiopia over 127 provinces. In, the, in those days when King Ahasuerus sat on his royal throne in Susa, the citadel, in the third year of his reign, he gave a feast for all of his officials and servants. The army of Persia and Medea and the nobles and governors of the provinces were before him, while he showed the riches of his royal glory and the splendor and pomp of his greatness for many days, 180 days. And when these days were completed, the king gave for all the people present in Susa, the citadel, both great and small, a feast, lasting for seven days in the court of the garden of the king's palace. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. All right. Thank you, Ellie. And again, good morning. If, uh, if you're new or um, you've uh, never heard me preach before, I want to introduce myself to you. My name is Dave, um, like I said there, I'm one of the pastors here, and I do want to give you a, a heads up that I have a stutter. It's not that uh, I'm cold, although that's also true, but it's, uh, it's that that'll just kind of come in and out as I, as I preach. I want to make sure that you know what that is so you can focus on the right things um, with me. And so will you go ahead and turn with me to Esther chapter 1, if you have a Bible with you. If you don't, Will you hold your hand up and keep it up, and we will get you one, okay? We want to make sure everyone has a Bible to follow along with and to see that this is God speaking to us through his word. So, Ken, hold your hand up, keep it up, we'll get you one. If you don't own one, this is our gift to you. Um, and if you prefer a Bible in Spanish, uh, please um, tell us. We have those as well, and we'd love to get you get you one of those. And so um, as you see here, we are kicking off a new series this week in Esther. And so a couple things I want to um, just kind of say out of the gates there is um, one, this is fun, just um, uh, Pastor Marcus is actually preaching at Vineyard, uh, Vineyard Christian Community this morning. This morning, he's there um, sharing with them. So that's, that's cool and just great to, again, as we say, we not only pray for other churches, but we have um, yeah, just some significant partnerships uh, with different, different churches around town. And also, on that note, I want to um, point out, again, a couple things. So we're starting a series in Esther that will be in up until Easter, but next week, we're going to actually push pause and we're going to do a unique um, time where we're going to we're going to press in and look at uh, God's heart for the marginalized and the overlooked in our community specifically um, children involved in the foster care and kinship and a, a adoption um, organizations. Um, we're going to be really pressing in and talking about our heart as a church to be engaged, all of us, um, whether we are foster care or kinship or adoptive parents or just people who come alongside and surround those who are called uniquely in that way. So we're excited for that. We're going to hear from some folks. We're going to talk about that as a church next week, and then we'll dive back into Esther. So I want to give you a heads up on that. So this morning, we'll be in Esther um, one and two. And I, I also want to point out, in case you didn't notice, though I expect everyone here did notice, this legit little Bible stand that we got here. It's a new one. And this is a, uh, a Turkish 
Bible stand that I, um, uh, I'm a hustler and I'm going to take free stuff wherever I go. It's just how I grew up. And, um, and, and so we were at a, an event earlier this week, Pastor Marcus and some others from here in Tucson and I were at this event that was talking about politics and polarization and, um, and, and just we we're trying to get out in front of what does it look like to know and follow Jesus as his people and how do we help shepherd all of us to be kingdom minded and just kind and gracious and Christ-like uh, in this, you know, season that's coming. So what does that have to do with this? They were giving away door prizes and another pastor in Tucson, I won't, I won't, um, you know, hang him out there like this, but he won it. And uh, a bunch of us from Tucson were up there in Phoenix and he won this thing was like, I don't want this. And I was like, I do give us that. So, uh, we, you know, walked out there and, uh, it's neat. So anyway, that's what that is. Uh, handcrafted. You should come up and see. It's awesome. So, um, that's exciting. And just, there you go. So uh, thank you for joining in my excitement for these things. So um, as I said, this week we're getting into Esther. And this week we're going to do kind of an overview and, and we're going to set the stage for where we'll be throughout the weeks to come as we look at, look at Esther. And, and my guess is some of us have different ideas in mind when we come to Esther. And I know for me, uh, as I've pressed in and dug in and even prepared for this, this sermon, uh, there's a lot that I, I've assumed. And I think um, God has, is, it's, it's incredibly well written. And there's a plan and a purpose that, for God to, to shape us through our time together in this. And, um, and so this morning, what we'll see is again, kind of an intro. And, and, and specifically, we'll look at two kings and their supporting casts. And, and it will set the scene for uh, God's supernatural work through ordinary everyday life. So God supernaturally working through seemingly mundane, ordinary everyday life. And we'll see that as we look at, kind of contrast, two kings and their supporting casts together. So will you join me in prayer as we ask God to uh, open his word for us this morning? Again, uh, Lord God, we acknowledge that um, this is you speaking. I don't expect that everyone here assumes that or believes that even, but I want to be forthright that that's uh, my expectation. Your, Your word testifies about itself, and it says that it is sharper than any two-edged sword, that it cuts um, to our hearts. It separates the marrow. Lord, you, you are surgically at work as we read the word and, and come under it together. And so I pray and I trust that though the grass withers and though flowers fade, your word, the word of our God, endures forever. And so will you reveal yourself and who you are and your plans and what that means for us and how we live everyday life. In Jesus' name we pray together. Amen. Esther chapter 1, we see, now in the days of Ahasuerus, good job Ellie, that was a tough one, in the days of Ahasuerus, the Ahasuerus who reigned from India to Ethiopia over 120 provinces, 
In those days when Ahasuerus sat on his royal throne in Susa, the citadel. So this first king that we're exposed to is this king Ahasuerus. Now, I'm going to say Xerxes because that's a lot easier to say. Xerxes, uh, you know, X-E-R-X-E-S, um, Xerxes is, uh, is the same king. And so um, that's who we're talking about here. We'll get to him in a mo- moment, but he's seemingly out of the gates the main character. All right, as we look at this, even though the book's named after Esther, we assume, oh, it's all about Esther. I've seen m- m- movies made, Veggie Tales, right, did their spin on it. And uh, uh, does everyone here know Veggie Tales? Um, it's, yeah, probably, yeah, probably some of you don't, and that's okay. Um, but uh, it goes way back to when I was in, I think, high school or something. But um, so they did their whole, their whole spin on it, their take, and there has been like romantic movies and takes on it, you know, Hollywood had their, their say and stuff, and it's all about Esther and this kind of romantic scene. Well, even out of the gates, we see that um, we're not introduced to Esther, and we'll get to her in a bit, but we're not even introduced to her until chapter two, but um, right out of the gates, it seems that the main character is this King Ahasuerus, or King Xerxes, and especially, again, in a bit, when we press into kind of history and what was happening historically, um, he is no insignificant character. This guy is, is, is massive. He's significant. So when anyone, especially a Jewish audience, when this was authored around four in the, in the mid to late 400s BC, uh, you would be like, oh, okay, this is clearly the main character. This is one of the most, most significant historical figures in all of human history. So you get in and, and you see he's flashy. But again, let's just hit pause there. We'll come back to him. But let's get to know some of King Xerxes' su- supporting cast. So first, we have this Queen Vashti. V- v- Queen Vashti, picking up in verse 9. Queen Vashti also gave a feast for the women in the palace that belong to King Ahasuerus. So this was very common practice. The men are doing their thing, their feast, and then the women have a feast that's separate, and they will sometimes come together, as we'll see in a, in a mo- moment, but it's, it's, it's not for um, really wholesome practices. But the normal everyday approach was the men and the w- women are separate, so the queen is having her own feast. And then verse 10, on the seventh day, when the heart of the king was merry with wine, he commanded, and I'm not going to list all these people, but basically he had seven um, royal eunuchs who served him. And um, he he commanded them to bring, now picking up in verse 11, Bring Queen Vashti before the king with her royal crown in order to show the peoples and the princes her beauty, for she was lovely to look at. But Queen Vashti refused to come at the king's command, delivered by the eunuchs. At this, the king, the king became enraged and his anger burned within him. So let me just pause for a moment and let's talk about this queen. All right. Um, again, if you see Veggie Tales, she is presented as like kind of a, an, an 
entitled crybaby and she's whiny and she's this nag and all this stuff and she's kind of, you know, it's just, it's, it's, I would actually say it's, it's, it's not accurate at all. But it's, it's also assuming lots of things that the Bible doesn't really give us. So especially this morning in these first two chapters, we're going to work hard to stay where God wants us to stay. So this queen, there are some things that we know about her potentially from like historical accounts. Uh, the main his, historian Herodotus wrote tons and tons about these different people. And most of what we know is about them. But a lot of what we know kind of extra biblically or outside of the Bible is not in here. And I would submit to us that's by design. Okay, so we need to not like create our own story, but read the story that God is giving to us. So with that, as we look at Queen Vashti, I would want to warn, we need to not paint her in one of two extremes. I think we need to not set her up to be like so evil and horrible and the example of what to not be, but also not go the other extreme, which sometimes happens and set her up as this heroic figure. Like some people have even called her the first feminist. She's standing up for women's rights. She's, she's, she's pushing back against the man, right? She's not, not, not doing what the king is calling her to do. And that is true. She's not doing what the king is calling her to do. There's all kinds of um, assumptions and different things of what was happening here. But what we know is that the king is, um, is using all these different characters, even his queen here, to platform himself. He has selfish gain. He wants to parade her before everyone else to, to show just how great he is, and she refuses. And the main point in that is this, is that something in seemingly everyday life, this queen, we don't know why from our own perspective, but she refuses to go, and that is one domino that falls that sets to other dominoes falling. This queen refuses to go, and so she's, again, a supporting cast member. Xerxes wants to use her as his supporting cast, as his, as his ensemble to platform himself. But, but we'll learn more here. She's an important supporting cast member to a bigger story that's happening. And then we move on to the next group of supporting cast. I'm not going to, again, read all their names, but in verses 13 through 19 of chapter 1, we see the king's wise men, right? We saw these seven eunuchs and these other seven wise men that um, are all around him. And it's, it's a weird dynamic, okay, because the king seemingly has all the power, all the influence, all the authority. Again, in a moment, we'll just talk about who this king is. And, and what we get presented here is he's this flashy king. And he has all these people who are there to do his bidding. But in this, in, this, in this exchange that he has, not only does his queen resist him and not do what he says, but then he's manipulated by all these people who he seemingly rules over but you actually find he's like subservient to in many ways. He's easily, he's easily swayed to the left and to the right by other people who kind of very creatively tap into his ego. 
And so he creates all these different edicts about how we drink. Like, you, you have to drink in this way. You don't have to drink in that way. When you have this, when you party, this is how you drink. And then he gives these other edicts about, about how um, women, in a sense, all women need to respect their husbands and do whatever their husbands say. And, and again, that's kind of a very simplistic way to go about it. But it's, it's not because he came up with this, but he says, what does the law teach? And what do my wise men say I should do? And he's constantly um, kind of per, per, like puffing out his chest and presenting himself as this powerful king. But as we dig in, he's actually manipulated by and, and actually performing for the audience. Okay, I just want to even pause for a moment and acknowledge for us that this is very similar to our world today, right? We see political figures, famous people, ourselves, right? So often enslaved to how many followers do we have? How many likes do we get? Who's our audience? I, I as a pastor, right? This could be a, a very dysfunctional relationship, and it sadly often is in so many churches, in so many contexts, and I don't want to, I don't want to be blind or so arrogant to think that that couldn't happen here where I'm, where we as pastors are platformed and, and like honored, but then um, also we're like we're super careful about how we talk and we maybe hold back on saying certain things and, and say things a certain way to keep people's affirmation. And, 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 and there's this really dysfunctional view we have here of earthly leadership. So that's part of this supporting cast of this King Xerxes. Now let's go back and look at this flashy king who actually has no real power. He's actually flexing all over the place. Again, everything that we just um, looked at and some of the stuff that I just like filled in, he throws this party that's like 180 days. So I'm, no, I'm not great at math, but that's like, like six months, right? That's a long time. I don't think it was just a dr like a drunken Mardi Gras for six months straight. But the way that it's presented here is it's likely, again, he's, he's creatively for six months, just building a campaign for just how great he is. That's not necessarily an unintentional little reminder as we go into seasons of people parading and, and, and you know, showing just how amazing they are. Like, that's going to happen from the right, the left, the uh, everyone, right? It's, and this is how I'm so great. But then what happens is a specific set aside seven days that's just a party, that's just now it's a party and everyone's drinking and all these things. And, and so he's, um, he's, he's flexing. He's showing how great he is. So who is this King Xerxes? Uh, if you could show up here this, this picture, this is who it is. Some of you might recognize this king. That's him. It's the same one. So if you've ever seen the movie 300 or you're familiar with 300, King Xerxes, this king who's a god or this god who's an earthly king. That's like the words that are used that he presents himself as. It's the same one. This is Ahasuerus. Um, this King Xerxes, he's an actual historical figure. He lived um, and, and, and reigned from 486 to, to 464 EC. So he reigned for about 18 years. As we saw there, from India to Ethiopia. 
this, this significant empire that he ruled over, and he ruled from Susa, uh, which is um, western Persia, which is now modern-day Iran, modern-day Iran. He ruled from there, and, um, and, and, and if you could show this, this second picture of this is like, again, some of the stuff that was in there is, um, and these are probably the only two, two pictures from the movie I could show you. So, um, but no, there's, there's just opulence on display. There's these exotic animals. There, there's a scene where, and there's like rock music playing in the background and stuff. But when the when the Spartans are about to fight them, there's these all these ships are are just as far as the eye can see. This this navy that just fills the the whole span of of all that you can see, and it's great. It's powerful. But here's the thing. Um, we know from history again that, that that there was this huge battle with with the Athenians, the the people from Athens, the Greeks, and um, and the Persians were supposed to dominate them, but they lost. And um, so we know again from that this insecurity that this this. God King is not all that He parades Himself to be. But again. Um, this book, Esther, is written in such a way, a really creative way, that doesn't highlight the things we think would be highlighted. We get this picture there that, that this king parades himself as one thing, but is actually um, uh, of something very small. That, again, insecure, clamoring for people's approval, Easily manipulated, easily swayed by the crowds, by the masses that he's supposed to rule over. And you know what uh, I heard someone else refer to him as? The Michael Scott King. <laughs> That's the way that this author here, this, this author of Esther presents Xerxes, is this Michael Scott from The Office, who's, who has a coffee mug that says, world's greatest boom. Boss, right? Some of us might have even have might have that mug, and hopefully we're being like we're joking because we know. But he like he forces people to throw parties. He throws birthday parties for himself. M Michael Scott does, and he he kind of parades himself as this smart, winsome person, but he's actually really presented as a fool. In the office, he's a kind of likable fool, but he's still a fool nonetheless. Like you wouldn't want to want to want like I'm. Guessing the Eller School of Business at the U of A doesn't use him as the example of, like, this is how you should, uh, if you get your degree from here, this is what you will become. Uh, ASU might do that, but <laughs> just kidding. Sorry, right? I got to do it just a li little bit here and there. Whoa. Um, so the Michael Scott King, he's a fool. He's not who he parades himself to be. Um, and yet, again, these first couple chapters, in, in the, as, the, as the story unfolds, it's like, well, this is the main character, right? This is this, this great king, but he's actually like the flashy, fake king. And he has this supporting cast, Queen Vashti, all these wise men, which is, again, kind of an ironic play on words. 
And then, now in chapter 2, we get introduced to these two other characters who are also a part of a supporting cast, but it's, it's not clear where they fall. Let's, let's look at them, picking up with me in chapter 2. Um, I'll pick up here in verse 5. Now, there was a Jew in Susa, the citadel, whose name was Mordecai, the son of Jair, son of Shimei, son of Kish, a Benjamite, who had been carried away from Jerusalem among the captives, carried away with Jeconiah, king of Judah, whom Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, had carried away. So this is Mordecai, all right? We're introduced first to Mordecai. This is, um, if you know Jewish people or kind of uh, Jewish culture, Mordecai is known as a very Jewish name. And, and, and again, the first audience who would get this book um, would know a couple things about this. That this Mordecai, it says that he is from a son of Kish, a Benjamite, He's actually in the line of King Saul. Um, so he is Jewish, but it's not exactly like the most favorable Jewish family. You know, King Saul, if you remember, is the people demanded a king. And so they cried out for a king that was a head taller than everyone else, right? That's your first mistake. Um, no, but who, right? Who you could kind of, again, present as this powerful, flashy king, and he failed. And then there was another imperfect king, King David, and, uh, right, he, and he didn't have it all together either by any means. But even there, it's like, okay, so this guy descends from, and some people went back to Jerusalem. Jerusalem was conquered. They were carried away by the Babylonians. That's why Nebuchadnezzar, another person just like Xerxes, this powerful uh, flashy king. He, they, they conquered God's people, uh, the Jewish people. They conquered the Israelites and took them away. And then some of them went back in return. But Mordecai was part of the people that did not. Something else that's there is Mordecai would not be a Jewish name uh, at first. He's a Jewish person, and we'll see this more even as we, as we go on, but him and Esther, who we'll meet in a moment, um, neither of them are like your model faithful Jewish people. Uh, Mordecai, the name Mordecai, is actually uh, connected to a false god, a foreign god, a, a god that the Persians, that many kind of pagan uh, armies who, who, who God's people contend with, the god Marduk. Mordecai, the name Mordecai is directly derived from and connected to this, this other god, Marduk. So again, Mordecai, just like Queen Vashti, as we'll see in a moment, a lot like Esther, is not presented to us as someone to like be, be like Mordecai, model yourself after Mordecai, name your kids Mordecai. If you do that right, people name their kid after David, Mine, and he wasn't the best person. You know, it's like no one is, but we, we tend to fall into this narrative of propping up the wrong people. And so Mordecai's not, he's a supporting cast, and it's unclear whose supporting cast he's a part of. And then pick up in verse 
uh, 7, we meet now the person this book is named after as we have it. He, Mordecai, was bringing up Hadassah, that's her, that's her Jewish name, Hadassah, that is Esther, the daughter of his uncle, for she had neither father nor mother. The young woman had a beautiful figure and was lovely to look at. And when her father and her mother died, Mordecai took her as his own daughter. So uh, a few things that we need to see here about, about, um, about Esther is um, she is presented here in this story, especially early on, as not having a whole lot of agency. The, 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 the word is used there that she was taken multiple times. She was taken by Mordecai. She didn't really have a, have a choice to do that. She was taken by the king. She was taken to be a part of his, his harem. She became a concubine. She was elevated to be queen from this position as a concubine. And, and um, I could press into what this, how this happened. It was in some ways an honor to be a concubine, but just to let you know again, this is where like Hollywood's renditions just fall so short. Um, in our day, we would absolutely call this like sexual slavery. Um, kings like Xerxes there who we saw just just had had a harem, had multiple women, um, and, and in those cultures, just like in Roman culture, often it was age and gender did not really matter. It was all about kind of their their own personal pleasure. They would abuse and use whomever, and um, but they would have a harem of women primarily to advance their name to keep their kingdom going, to have many sons born. And so um, they would elevate someone to be queen, as we just saw, right? Queen Vashti was queen. But Esther um, was, was just became a p- part of this because she was born be, be, be beautiful. As it says here, she was beautiful to lo- lo- look at, much like the queen, and again, for sake of time, I would encourage you to, to read and to dig in here more, but there's this whole year-long process of beautification, of, of, of someone who's, who's initially pretty, and then before they're brought before the king, they're made even prettier through this whole year-long process of, you know, skin care and all these different types of things to, to and, and, then, and then there, just, um, again, this is just sad, and this is the reality of what we're lo- looking at here, is um, those who would, who, would, who would finally get, and there's one of the mo- movies that Hollywood put together, it's called like A Night with the King, and it's like presented this romantic, incredible night, but again, it was more like these many, many women uh, against their, like, they didn't have any agency in this, would have one night with the king that, that they would, as a, as a concubine, and if they pleased him, um, then he would, he would keep them as part of his harem. But if not, they would be excused or 
dismissed, almost certainly to just never be married again, to just kind of live their life in some way as, um, again, kind of as a, as a slave, kind of t- tossed aside. And so this is the backdrop. This is where Esther is and how she's presented to us. Is she, she like her, her uncle, kind of happened to be the right person at the right place at the right time, but really he's not necessarily like a faithful Jewish man. He's in some ways presented as kind of selfish, but also kind of caring, and it's hard to know like what to do with him. And Esther is presented similarly. I don't want to downplay. She has, she's brave in many cases, as we'll see kind of down the road especially, but you know, early on is like she's not presented as this, this heroic person that has so much agency and has a plan. They're both actually more presented as the right people in the right place at the right time. And, and so there's, again, this question of what's, what's happening here. Like, for, for example, um, at the end of chapter two there in verse, uh, in verse 19, I don't even know if I'll um, have it up here on the, on the, on the screen, um, but um, on, yeah, I'm, yeah, at the end of chapter two, it says, now when the virgins were gathered together the second time, Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate. So he just happens to be hanging out at the king's gate. Esther had not made known her kindred or her people as Mordecai had commanded her. So again, that's presented. Um, just Esther and Mordecai are a stark contrast to other people just shortly around this same time, like you think of Daniel or Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who were like, who were presented as faithful, godly Jewish people who like were honoring the kosher Jewish law and who would not bow down to anyone or anything. They were presented as living as these faithful Jewish people in a, in a foreign land. That's not the way Esther and Mordecai, in fact, they're like hiding their, their Jewishness. And, and so Mordecai happens to be hanging out at the gate. And while he's there, he overhears two people plotting to kill the king. And so he lets it be known. And he tells Esther, who then makes it known to the king. But again, um, and then those two people are found out and they're actually killed and, um, you know, the king's life is, is spared. There's this, but it's seemingly ordinary everyday life as far as they're concerned. They're just surviving. They're going from one day to the next. And yet these massively historically significant events are happening and, and, and we are presented with all this in a really creative way that's actually called a, um, it's, it's, it's a way that's written, but one um, scholar, um, Carrie Jobes, presents it this way, is, it's, is we're constantly taken one direction where you expect something to happen and then something else happens. And, and we're left with these questions almost as like, well, who's the main character? Is it this flashy, false king that we're presented with? And, and yet, behind the scenes, there's this seemingly silent, sovereign king who's intentionally never named in the book, but we're constantly presented with this author, this, this person who's 
pulling the strings, who's directing every event, who's, who's seemingly at the last minute allowing Mordecai to be right there to overhear this thing that then will come up in a couple of chapters we'll hear about again. And it's like right on the verge of destruction when, when, when God had made all these promises and seemingly God's promises are in danger, are about to become, uh, are about to be shown as, as, as God's going to be shown as a liar. His promises will not be fulfilled at the very last second, something changes. And God is presented very creatively, very silently behind the scenes as an altogether different king. He's constantly at work in the background. But he's the main character. He's working at his own pace. In uh, chapter 2, verse 16, again, you don't have to throw it up there, but it's just very subtly thrown in there that we're now in the seventh year of the king's reign, of King Xerxes' reign. We, I don't know about you, but when I just kind of read through this book, I would miss that, that, oh, four years have passed, that we're presented with this story that's like this anxious, like last minute, what's going to happen? What's going to happen? It's a page turner, and it seems like it's all happening at once, but Behind the scenes, God is non-anxiously, patiently weaving the story as he wants it to be woven. He is presented as a non-anxious, not so flashy, seemingly silent, but all-powerful king. Life is naturally supernatural. There are no little people and no little places. These are things that we love to say, and this is an example of we see it firsthand here of God at work. We are left with all these questions. We're forced to be faced with some of our deepest fears as we read through Esther together. We're invited to acknowledge some of our questions like similar to Esther and Mordecai, is my just small, seemingly mundane life actually, is, am I connected to anything bigger? Um, like what, what, is, what is my work as a mechanic, a nurse, a builder, an educator, a, a parent, a student? Like it's like these are small but potatoes. They're so much bigger, right? We saw those pictures from th- th- 300. We Like someone else who rules and reigns from India to Ethiopia, that's like, that's the whole continent of Africa in there and, and the mi- Middle East and all. And yet it's like we think, oh, there's so much bigger going on and how do I fit into it? And yet we see in this story someone who again, is working supernaturally through seemingly natural, everyday, mundane life. That somehow the big events of human history are not so big after all. And yet, the seemingly small, insignificant lives of individuals like you and me are eternally significant. And this is not so different from the scene that would happen about four and a half to 500 years down the road from this event with Esther. When the Roman Empire is expanding and growing and there are all these huge historical figures on the scene and in a little seemingly nowhere town at a seemingly insignificant time in human history, 
a little seemingly insignificant baby would be born to a seemingly insignificant people group that would actually be the true king of the entire world, who would actually be one to very similarly to this sovereign, seemingly silent king in Esther, who would not uh, try to appease the crowds, who would not look for affirmation and validation from everyone else, but would sovereignly, powerfully, non-anxiously continue to march through his plan of dying on a cross victoriously, raising from the dead, ascending to the right hand of God the Father, calling a supporting caste, a group of seemingly insignificant people through just everyday life, and him saying that he is making all things new and establishing a kingdom that will rule and reign for all eternity that will be far more glorious than Xerxes' silly, small, fake kingdom. So what does that mean for you and me? We look at this king, and we'll be presented with five things as we march through. Let me close by showing us these five things to interact with. We'll see together as we walk through this God, what do we do with God, this seemingly quiet, silent player in the background of this whole incredible drama? We see that God remembers his promises to his people. When we're asking questions, I've failed to honor my promises to God. Is he now gonna fail to honor his promises to me? But we'll see that he always remembers and fulfills his promises. He providentially works through, again, seemingly insignificant individuals. Look, let us not, not malign, but also not overly elevate. Esther, Vashti, Mordecai, Xerxes, like they're not the main characters. But still, God chooses to work through individuals. His saving work is always oriented toward life. When the kingdoms of this world are bringing about death and destruction and abuse, God is always fighting against it to bring about salvation where, where life is found. Number four, God works out his plan in spite of political leaders, sometimes through political leaders, but the true power, the true hope is never presented ever in all of scripture as this is the hope. Especially here, God is the king. He has a political agenda. And it's a monarchy. But it's a kingdom like no other. It's a good king who lays down his life. Who is bold and courageous and sovereign, but not flashy. Not anxious, not meaty. And then number five, God accomplishes his work through the unworthy and the unlikely. Church, that's good news for you and for me. As we close, we're forced again, we're faced with our own fears, our own questions, and yet we see that God's sovereign work is on display in seemingly insignificant, unflashy ways through seemingly insignificant, unflashing people. And he's seemingly silent, but he's always sovereign. 
and he's powerful. And he alone is the true king. So let's pray and respond to him together. Lord Jesus, we acknowledge that you are the true king. Lord, I acknowledge that um, so often I want to, I'm, I'm, I believe the lie that I'm actually the, the king, the king of my own little individual kingdom, my own life, and everything about is me, you know, uh, pandering to the, the crowds, but also um, trying to rule over the crowds. I think that's all of us in some ways. Also, we're all faced to just think that we don't matter at all, that we're just kind of easily trampled over by standards uh, where there's much bigger events in human history happening. But Lord, in, in, in you and in you alone, we see that you are far greater than we ever could imagine, and you're also far closer and more concerned with and more aware of every thought, every word, every fear, every hope of every human being. So Lord, I pray that we are uh, both, that we turn to you in worship and adoration, but also in, in humility and in worship and in empowerment and in boldness. Lord, let us um, have our eyes fixed on you, Jesus, the true King. In your name we pray, amen.